chapter 1. Right around verse 3 for you electronic people, but then you could start at verse 1, actually. Are you at verse 1? Because that's where I'm going to start. You're starting to anticipate. Good for you. What's that? Well, it is what it is. Actually, I think I want to read the first seven verses. As I told you um, before, that the first seven verses in the book of Romans is one long, continuous, somewhat complex verse in the Greek. It's a little bit complex in the, uh, in the uh, English. Matter of fact, what's interesting about it is, okay, I'm really armed today. I've got three Bibles. Anyway, I don't know what I'm going to do with this one yet. Well, I know what I'm going to do with it. But I almost forgot it. You'll understand later, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll probably want to turn to this as well, the, the ESV as well as the New, uh, the New King James. It tells us in the verse, uh, first verse of the first chapter of Romans, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, By the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name, among whom also are called of also, uh, excuse me, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that upon ourselves from you, Lord, that you would give us grace, that you would give us peace. Lord, we ask that you would give us understanding that we may apply and consider your word this morning and apply it to our hearts, apply it to our lives. Lord, as we look at this, this, just this little passage of uh, talking about how great you are, and, and describing the dual nature of Jesus Christ, we ask, Lord, that you would just give us insight into it. And, and Lord, that it would be a means uh, that would move us just to want to walk even closer to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. What I, what I love about this, this um, passage, besides everything, is that it is a very strong declaration of the person of Jesus Christ. And I'm, I'm going to settle in to verse 3 and verse 4 this morning uh, where it says, uh, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now that, that's a mouthful, all right? There's, there's a lot of theology in that. Um, what's interesting about it, and you may... I. I I, I forgot to to look at what the NIV has to say. I won't have any of you read it. But what's interesting is is that this sentence, the way it's translated from the Greek into the English, can be translated 
um, in a couple of different ways. Notice how it says in the New King James, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right. In the ESV, it says concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And, and there's a, Again, the, the, the translators rarely annotate much about why they translate in the way that they do. I think either way works. Um, and the meaning is not lost in either translation. At least it isn't for me. Because the, the, the bulk of, of what we read, well, not the bulk, the entirety of what we read in verse 3 and in verse 4 is concerning Jesus Christ our Lord. So whether we put that at the beginning or whether we put that at the end, um, your mileage may vary. Obviously, theirs did, okay? So it's not just here, folks, okay? Their mileage varied. But nonetheless, uh, we want to look at this particular passage concerning Jesus Christ, our Lord. And, And this sets the stage, actually, for how we look at this entire letter, as long as it is. And as as slow as we're going, it's going to take us a long time uh, to get through it. But there will be be portions that I will cover probably more than two or three verses at a time. So, uh, plus we're doing this on Wednesday night as well. So, uh, you have this title that is given Jesus in verse 4, the Son of God. Now, I look at this as a title, uh, but also a reality. But when some people hear the term Son of God, they think that God the Father somehow created or procreated. Now, I don't know how that works, okay? But uh, somehow created or procreated Jesus, and, and um, that's not biblical. That's not what the Bible declares about the Son. And, and so I like to view him uh, this title, uh, uh, the, the name, the Son of God, more as a title than, than, than actually describing the real reality. He's, he's preexistent. Matter of fact, I, I rarely quote from people, but I'm going to quote from a guy named David Stern from the, uh, the uh, Jewish New Testament commentary. Some of you, uh, I've referred you to it, and, you, and I know that you have it on your shelves. But let me read to you what he writes about the title, the Son of God. Uh, It says, the divine, eternally existent individual or word who always has and always will be within the inner structure of Adonai, okay? Adonai is another name for the Lord or for God, all right? Remember, this is out of the Jewish New Testament commentary, and I didn't want to change it at all. And in that structure, okay, he's always within the inner structure of Adonai, and in that structure, which is the one God, All right? So he's highly Trinitarian, just like I am. Uh, In that structure, which is the one God, is in his essence the Son in both equal and subsidiary relationship with the Father. And then he lists a long uh, list of verses that I won't take the time to shout them out to you. If you really want them, I can give them to you later. I I touch on this quite a bit, so hopefully that you're, you're familiar with this. But but this idea of this relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and also God the Holy Spirit, that they, they are equal and yet they are, are uh, submitting to each other. 
the, the Son does submit to the Father. The Spirit is sent by the Father and is sent by the Son. And so um, there, there's no sense of rivalry. There's no sense of, well, I better say it because he, he told me to go do it. There's, there's, this, there's this perfect, how do I describe this? Um, perfect communion of love and, and, and respect and sense of mission where their egos aren't involved. Ever think about that? God doesn't have the ego issues that you and I have. Jesus didn't have the ego, ego, ego issues that you and I have. He probably was able to say that a whole lot better than I just did also. But equal but subsidiary relationship. The son has always been in the inner structure of who God is. Um, it's interesting, too, because this title, Son of God, is used about 43 times in the New Testament. Although Jesus had other titles that he liked to refer himself to as well, didn't he? What was his favorite name for himself? Son of Man, thank you. And he was also referred to many, many, many times, it's also found in this verse, as the Son of David. See, the Jews understood that the Son of David was a messianic title, and they understood that the Son of David was not a mere mortal. They didn't have it all quite figured out, right? It was obvious as we read through the Gospels when Jesus comes on the scene, not only did they not understand it, but when he's uh, encountering the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they did not want to understand it. Or they understood it, but they didn't want to accept it. Boy, talk about a, um, a seared conscience. When you understand it, you receive it as a truth, but you want nothing to do with it. I've met few peop- a few people like that, fortunately not too many. But their conscience is so seared, they recognize the truth, but they want nothing to do with it. Now, how's that going to work out for them? Probably not real well. Probably not real well. And, and, so, uh, and so what Paul is doing here, he's combining the two natures of Jesus. We see in, 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 in a chapter, or verse 3 where he says, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. That's speaking about his human nature. We see in, in uh, uh, verse 4, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That is a reference to his divine nature. So already here at the very beginning of all this stuff that we are going to read and study and consider as we go through the book of Romans, that is brought to the forefront of everything that Paul wants to instruct us is that we need to know and understand who Jesus is who he was, who he is, and who he is to become even. Because Jesus Christ, according to the scriptures, is what? The same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I, th- I think what, what Paul is, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what Paul is saying to us while not saying it directly is that we need to view the scripture through the lens of the person of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he taught and how he lived. And, and so, the, so the gospels still always need to be in, our for, in the forefront of our thinking as we look um, 
at this particular letter. Now, what's interesting about it, too, is that I believe that Paul is tying the Christian faith with the Jewish faith and showing them that, that, there are, that, that it really isn't two faiths. When you, when, you, when you talk to people today or you read books or whatever, or magazines or whatever, they talk about the, the Jewish faith and the Christian faith. It really is one faith, or it was supposed to be. Because all that, and we, and we looked at this on, a little bit on um, uh, Wednesday nights where it talked about how, how uh, God promised before through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What Holy Scriptures are Paul, or is Paul referring to in verse 2? He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about Old Testament prophets. And, and so the, the Old Testament was all about telling the story of a Messiah who will come. The New Testament is telling the story of a Messiah who has come. And it's also been said that the Old Testament is, 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 is Jesus Christ concealed and the New Testament is Jesus Christ revealed. And, and so it, it's, it was this... Do I dare say this? I will. When the Messiah came to Israel, they should have dropped their Judaism and become Christians. That was God's intention. That was God's purpose. That was God's plan. That the, the, the whole of Judaism was to point toward the Messiah. And they were intended by God to be the light to whom? The Gentiles. And how, how good did they do of that? About as good as the church is the light to the non-Christians today. So we're just like them. Really are. And because you put 10 Christians in a room, you end up with 13 different opinions. Remember I've told you you put 10 Jews in a room, you end up with 12 different opinions. You put 10 Christians in a room, you end up with 13 different opinions. And such as it is. But Paul is trying, what I find interesting about this, because I've read more commentaries and and, uh, most commentators believe that the Roman church was primarily Gentile. And I brought that up a little bit last week. That uh, in 49 AD that Claudius had kicked all the Jews out of Rome. In 54, Nero comes to power and he invites the Jews to return. Some of them do. Uh, how much this was a mixed Gentile Jewish church when Paul is writing, and he's probably writing somewhere between 54 and 58 AD. How much, uh, what does this church consist of is, is, is unclear. Yet, what I see here is Paul is tying the Christian faith into that which has already been declared in the Old Testament. He's tying them in to the Jewish Israelite faith, that, that true Israelite faith that when they were called by God to be God's chosen people and established on Mount Sinai and they were told to go into the promised land and they couldn't even get that right. They're just like the church. So I don't want to fault them too much. And so, so Paul is introducing this idea of the humanity of Jesus when he refers to the Messiah as the son of David. I, 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 uh, I got a computer program. I didn't turn page for page, but I did look it up. About 17 or more times in the New Testament, you see the phrase son of David. 
and, and Jesus is referred to as the son of David. It's a, a, a reference to the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's also repeated in Psalm chapter 89, verses 35 and 37, uh, where, where God made this promise to David that a descendant, one of his descendants would sit on his throne and reign forever. And the Jews understood it very clearly as it was a promise, a messianic promise that was given to David. David understood it right off. I had to go to church for a while to really kind of figure out what was going on in that one. It, to me, it's not necessarily as clear, but the Jews understood this to be a messianic um, um, prophecy that and promise that was given to David. We also see this uh, spoken about in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11, where it talks about the branch that will come forth from the root of Jesse. Who is Jesse? Jesse is David's father. So this branch will come forth. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, and I think into 2 and 3, you can look at that later. But also in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, where you have this promise of the branch coming forth, the Messiah who will come and he will rule and he will reign. So Jesus has a human part to him. He is 100% God. This is where it gets really hard to understand and really hard for me to explain because I don't understand it all myself. But he is 100% God and he is 100% man. He was born of the seed of David. He was, he was over, uh, his mother Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and she conceived without the help of her then uh, fiancé, for lack of a better term, Joseph. This is why the virgin birth is so important because it was the Holy Spirit who overshadowed Mary. He, he wasn't the product of, of a human union because then he would be completely human without the deity added to it. He is the son of the seed of David. He is the son of David. And important that it was that he become human. Therefore, he was able to experience every temptation as we are, Paul tells us, yet what? Without sin. So Hebrews is wonderful that talks about Jesus being our high priest because he experiences every temptation that we have and, 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 and therefore he is able to sympathize with us. Do you realize that, that, that in the things that you struggle with, with the sin maybe that you struggle with, that Jesus actually has sympathy for you in that? In your temper? <laughs> Go look at the ceiling. In your judgmentalism? In your, gosh, I better stop, huh? Um, Let's talk about the sins we used to do. That's a whole lot easier, isn't it? But that's not actually, uh, think about that, though. That's not being completely genuine in our faith, is it? Because, Because while I no longer succumb to sex, drugs, and rock and roll, there's just a whole lot of other stuff out there that I'm still wrestling with. And that I... Seek the Lord for his power, his grace to overcome those things. What's interesting too, it says here, um, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, verse 3, our Lord who was born. Um, 
Other translations actually have the phrase, was made. Think of that for a second. It's a Greek word, genome. And in its, in its grammatical construction, I could tell you second aorist participle, which would mean nothing to you or even to me, okay? But in its grammatical construction of the word, what it talks about, it signifies the entrance into a new condition. When it says here that Jesus was born of the seed, or in other translations it says Jesus was made of the seed of David, it literally means that he entered into a new state or condition by assuming a human body and putting himself under human limitations. It strongly implies also a pre-existence. If you enter into a new state of something, it means that before you entered in, you were in what? A different state, correct? So it implies his pre-existence before the conception of Mary. I think that's really interesting to, to remember here. John... In First John chapter four, uh, first John. I'm sorry, John. In the first chapter of John, we're still back in the other book we were teaching in. John one fourteen, the same word is used by John, where it says the word became flesh. In other words, the word entered into a new state or condition by assuming humanity, because as we know, the word became flesh, right? And dwelt among us. So, to me, that this just fascinates me. And again, it, it, it it's it, it's not given to us directly, but but the idea of the preexistence of Jesus prior to his humanity, the idea that he is human, the idea that he's also divine, is really strongly addressed here in these two little verses. And and so. It says also that he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of Holiness. Now, this is where it gets real tricky. This is part of why I wanted to to even address this here on a Sunday morning. This word declared, he's declared to be the Son of God. It means to mark out boundaries or limits of anything. It also means to appoint something. It can also mean to decree something or to determine something. Now, we have here the word declared given to us in the New King James, and I think part of the, the reason why this particular word was chosen was it's trying to get away from this idea that it wasn't until the resurrection that Jesus became the Son of God. He always was the Son of God. Remember part of the definition that I read to you that David Stern uh, wrote? He always was the Son of God. Because this particular word, it's the word horizo in the Greek. It, in, in the other places where it's used in the New Testament, it always is translated appointed. So he's appointed to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of Holiness. What is going on here is that he is being appointed really to something 
a title, a position that he has always been. But if you remember, in we're reading the Gospels, Jesus was very careful about how he and who he disclosed himself to. And even when they confessed him as the son of David, he would tell them what? Don't tell anybody. Remember that? Or when he would heal someone, he would say, well, don't tell them I did this, right? After the resurrection, we read in the book of Matthew, chapter 28, where as he stands up, he's about to ascend into heaven. And what does he say? It's called the Great Commission. You guys know this. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth, right? So in other words, he, he is, he's starting something anew. Because of the work that he did on the cross, he's been appointed as the one who has all authority. Paul talks about this even in the book of Philippians chapter 2 where he talks about uh, but he, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but, but he uh, took on what? The form of a servant. And he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, it says God has what? Highly exalted him. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There was something about the work of the cross and particularly the resurrection that took Jesus and set him essentially on a, not a higher level, but, a, but, a, but in a, a greater context of how he relates to humanity before because we see someone who is 100% human, someone who is 100% God, overcome death and as Peter told us in uh, his uh, first sermon in the book of Acts the grave could not hold him the grave could not hold him it was impossible for the grave to hold him and and so what's going on is 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 that Jesus is getting this exaltation that he in fact deserves because of the work that he did on the cross Because I don't know about you, but I've thought about this some. I don't know if I'd want to go to cross for any of you, right? Who you wanted would like to do it for me? I didn't think so. Uh, Sometimes I think I think we don't we don't really take into consideration the the, the humanity and the the human suffering on the cross, but also a dimension that I personally don't think I have a great insight into, and that is the spiritual suffering that God in the flesh suffered on the cross, being separated from God the Father. He's declared, appointed to be the Son of God. In other words, the resurrection only really declares him to what he truly is and what he truly was. The resurrection is that place where we stand up and take notice and realize that this was not just a mere man who died on the cross because he was, uh, he was a... Uh, Gosh, what do I want to say? I 
it's almost, there's not enough to really describe the death of Jesus. And he was charged, a man who was charged with sedition. Uh, He was a revolutionary, but he was even much more than that. Because his work on the cross was, was God's work of beginning to right all the wrongs that have happened in the world, both then and even into today and into the future. It's, it's the one thing, it's the one thing whereby this world has an opportunity to have a relationship with God, period. There's another name written in heaven, given among men, whereby men must be saved. And, and, and I don't think any of us here take that for granted. I really don't. I really don't. How much do you think about it, though? In the form of Thanksgiving, for example. Uh, uh, for some reason, maybe because I'm reading this and reading it and, read, and rereading, and, but it seems to be kind of sticking with me more lately. Wow, Jesus Christ went to the cross for me. He went to the cross for you. Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. That's a hard pill to swallow sometimes. Because there's still a part of me who still believes there just might be a little bit of me that's okay enough. (laughs) Why are you laughing? I know why you're laughing. Because you can relate, can't you? We just think maybe there's just enough of us. That's okay. And you know what? I think that's partly true. But it has to be held in the right context. It's actually very true. But it needs to be held in the right context. Because God demonstrated his love toward each of you that while you were yet sinners, Christ dies for you. So you are incredibly, incredibly valuable to God. Think about that with the body broken, the blood shed. That was done for you. And then resurrected. I'm so thankful for the resurrection. I am. I'm so thankful, especially as I'm getting older. That's not funny either, but that's okay. As I'm getting older, you know, it's just like, wow, because I don't want this to end. And because Jesus resurrected, and I don't have the time to get into this this morning, but Paul talks about this to the Corinthians, about the resurrection, Jesus Christ being the first fruit of the resurrection. And because he resurrected from the dead, I have that promise, you have that promise that we will resurrect from the dead. He's appointed the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. 
You see, the interesting thing about this, and I, I looked this up in the, what's called the, the New English Translation, netbible.org. It's actually an interesting translation. And they actually hyphenate uh, Son of God with power. In other words, that, they see that almost as his new t- title. He's the Son of God with power. Boy, I bet Pilate wouldn't want to stand before him now. The Son of God with power resurrected uh, according to the Holy Spirit, or excuse me, according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. What in the world does that mean? There's some different views on this. This is a very, this is a difficult passage really to unpack. But this idea of, of being the Son of God with power according to the Holy to the Spirit, as I'm letting the cat out of the bag, the Spirit of holiness there are those who believe that there's two diff- prevailing views on this. This idea of the spirit of holiness could refer to Jesus' spirit of holiness, which it makes sense and it, it kind of fits with the flow of what this is saying in the passage grammatically, although Paul has never been one to follow big grammatical rules, even though he was highly educated. Uh, he, he, he didn't write like the poets of the day, okay? But this could also be a reference, and this is kind of what I like here, a reference to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, being involved in the work of the resurrection. We'll see this again in in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, where it talks about uh, uh, the, the Holy Spirit resurrecting Jesus from the dead. Peter talks about this also in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. But, but to me, this seems to be speaking, bless you, seems to be speaking of the power of the Holy Spirit of God who uh, was involved in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, of course, if you, if you, if you do, so much, do some digging about the resurrection, you will see that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. You will see that Jesus raised himself up from the dead. And also, I think this is another, one passage, too, where it's talking about where the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. So that the Trinity was involved. The triune God was involved in the resurrection. He, the, 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 think of this uh, this way. The triune God was involved in the resurrection of the first fruits of which you and I will one day partake of and be a part of. That must have been a glorious moment for God. One that, I hope someone was filming it, right? I hope that's on YouTube in heaven. Just, uh, and, you know, I, I think that's one of the questions I want to ask God. What was it like at the resurrection? What was it like? Just that really the resurrection being the capstone of the work that was done on the cross. Because when Jesus dismissed his spirit, what did he say before he dismissed his spirit? Because remember, it is finished. It has been paid. The work of atonement is now done. And the resurrection was the sign that the, 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 the sacrifice of the life, the body, the blood of Jesus, the resurrection is a sign that this sacrifice was acceptable to God the Father. And the Trinity, I see, as involved in the work of the resurrection. 
And then whether you put this on the end or put this on the beginning, it's a reference to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Interesting that he uses this term because as I have told you before in the Septuagint, the Septuagint being the Greek translation of the Old Testament, whenever the proper name of God is written out in the Septuagint, the Jews had a high respect for the name of God that they would not say the name of God. That's why we end up with the YHWH, uh, which we believe is probably the name Yahweh. But the Jews, for fear of, of either mispronouncing or fear of, of a lack of respect for God, they would never say the name of God. They would just, just kind of grunt it out. Matter of fact, if you've read, if you've gone to Jewish, no, not Messianic, well, actually even some Messianic, but if you've gone to Jewish websites, often it is they will write the name God, capital G hyphen D, because they, they have such a high respect for the name of God that they don't, they, they, they're, they're, they approach it with such care and such caution. I think overly so, but that's another discussion for another day. So when the when they translated the Hebrew Bible into the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, whenever they came to the proper name of God, instead of writing out the YHWH, they wrote the word Kyrios, which is translated in English, Lord. So if... These Romans who were reading this letter were familiar with the Septuagint. If they were using the Septuagint, and chances are they were, when they read the phrase, Jesus Christ, our Lord, it's more than just a title of respect. It's a recognition of his deity again. Now, proclaiming him Lord has a bunch of other different attributes and, and, and uh, responses that are required of us. Because when we proclaim him as Lord, we're saying that he's our master, that we are going to follow him, that we are submitted to his lordship. But the first readers of this letter would understand that this term Lord would be a reference to his deity. So it's this understanding as we go through this book. It's going to take us a long time. That it's all about Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. God the Son. The Son of God. Who came and demonstrated his love toward each of you. That even though you were sinners, that you were out doing your own thing, he dies for you. And he heard your prayer. See, to me, this is where it gets even better. He heard your prayer when you prayed to ask him into your life. Knowing how much of a sinner you are, knowing that you were going to continue to sin, but he heard your prayer and he saved you. And he has brought you in to himself. And because he resurrected one of these days, 
we will. So there was an incredible amount of value and, 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 and something in us that although we can't see it maybe ourselves or maybe we see it too much, we have an overinflated view of ourselves, God sees you as incredibly valuable. God sees you as someone who is that pearl of great price, that he died and gave himself for you. That's the kind of God we serve. Just to think about it, it's just it's marvelous to me how much he loves us. And it's the love that I think he has for us, at least for me, is very hard for me to comprehend. But when I read passages like this and I, and I just think about all it was that God did to ransom me, to save me, to save you, What a wonderful work of redemption he's done. Amen. We thank you, Lord, for your great grace and for your love that you have for each of us. We thank you, Lord, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord, which gives us the hope of the resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that nothing can take us out of your hand and that you have us securely and safely, even in spite of our own failures, weaknesses, inconsistencies. We thank you, Lord, that you love us the way that you do. So we pray, Lord, that you would walk with us, Lord, and that not only that you would walk with us, that we would walk with you this week. That we would have that fellowship with you, communing with you. Allowing you to instruct us in the ways of righteousness for your great name's sake. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you guys.